netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. When Mike emailed me last week letting me know who our next guest on the FX Podcast was, I was really excited. Uh, I had the good fortune while working on National Spots in Chicago to obviously do a lot of VFX work but also a lot of motion graphics design work. And uh, truth be told, I probably enjoyed that part of my job the most as that was kind of one of my true loves in life over the years. So when he let me know Jeremy Lasky was our guest, I was stoked. He's a partner and co-founder of Perception. Uh, It's it's a design lab with a portfolio of really um, amazing work, uh, both on screen and, well, in real life, in the real world. I'm sure you recognize, would recognize a lot of their work uh, designing futuristic UIs and feature films like uh, the Wakandans Technologically Advanced um, Society and Black Panther, doing opening titles for things like, uh, I think they did a couple of them for WandaVision or several of them for WandaVision, but also um, doing real-world graphics. Uh, true story, I was in uh, getting a haircut a couple months ago, picked up a um, car and driver magazine, opened it up and thought, man, those GMC Hummer graphics look like what you'd see in a feature film. And Sure enough, Red On and Perception uh, was involved in the designing of that. That's the uh, 2024 Hummer EV uh, coming out and obviously 2024. Uh, it's a really fun conversation. They cover a lot of ground from things like design con- considerations and fonts to working uh, with clients and just uh, some history and stuff that they've worked on at the company. So let's go ahead and uh, cross that conversation now. It's Mike Seymour chatting with Jeremy Lasky. So Jeremy, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So uh, I guess I should start by just um, setting up for people that are listening. Like you have this incredibly interesting world where I guess I would, from my point of view, and you should obviously clarify this, but it seems like you're designing for a world where the things that you design for only need to seem plausible, but you're also, your company is also designing for things where you're actually designing for real products, where they not just need to look plausible, but actually be uh, highly functioning and plausible. That's an that's an interesting bridge to be uh, covering from both sides of. Yeah, it's a it's a very unique niche, um, Mike, that we carved out for ourselves, um, and we like to say we we straddle the two worlds of science fiction and science fact. And of course, uh, science fiction has always inspired technology and inventors for generations. You know, we're all familiar. Um, with, uh, you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, inspiring the inventor of the submarine and H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, inspiring the inventor of the rocket ship, Um, the Star Trek uh, communicator device, inspiring, you know, the Motorola flip phone and on and on. There's there's millions of examples of uh, technology taking inspiration uh, from science fiction. So for us, you know, the science fiction that we live in is feature films. And we want to get really specific it tends to be marvel feature films and superheroes and and the world of the mcu and all of the work that we do in those films uh really is focused on the technology of these characters about designing and conceptualizing this next gen tech um, that a lot of these characters are using throughout the movie um, and that really become in many ways an extension of who they are as characters um, you know, as an example, uh, Iron Man 2 was really our first big break, and we designed all the technology of Tony Stark in that film. And the tech really had to showcase 
uh, Tony Stark's genius, his creativity, um, his imagination. Uh, a lot of the work we did in that film was around designing Jarvis and holograms. And it really became like, almost like a, like a, like a three-dimensional holographic canvas for him to paint with. Um, he was described to us back then uh, as the modern day digital da Vinci. And how can we bring that to life through his technology? How can we create this technological ecosystem you know, around his house where everything sort of feels consistent and on brand uh, with Tony? Um, you know, and you know, many, many films uh, later, we, we worked on Black Panther, uh, which was you know, one of our proudest moments because we got to design the technology of Wakanda and all the properties of vibranium and all the different applications of vibranium. And so much of that, uh, that element is, is the bedrock, is the foundation of the story and of the film. We actually, uh, in, in that instance, we were really honored because we were part of uh, the earliest days of conceptualizing what the tech could be, even before they started shooting the film, um, because so much of the behavior and the properties of Vibranium were going to influence uh, both the storytelling, the filmmaking, the production design, you know, even the way his, his suit came on and the way the Kamoyo beads behave, like all these, these properties were, were challenges that we collaborated with, you know, the Marvel filmmakers and executive leadership on uh, bringing those to life so they could then uh, use that knowledge in their, in their production and in their filmmaking down the road. So now crossing over into the real world, um, those are just two examples of the, of the science fiction world. In the real world, we collaborate with a lot of the biggest tech companies on the planet um, in designing next generation user experiences uh, for real users. Um, you know, a lot of the tech clients, uh, just like I mentioned earlier, how inventions and technology were inspired by literature uh, and television, uh, you know, a lot of tech is now inspired by feature films and entertainment uh, in that regard. So it's, it's interesting because the tech clients that we work with oftentimes uh, approach us with, we want our product to feel cinematic. We want this application or this program or this user experience to feel like it does in the movies. You know, the, the beginning days, it was always like, we wanted it to feel like Minority Report. And then that quickly <laughs> became, we want this to look like Iron Man. Um, so it really, it's, it's whatever the, um, you know, the iconic uh, tech film is of the time, science fiction film that really has, you know, incredible technology of the time that a lot of the tech clients pointing to like, yes, we want something that feels like that. We want something that but, but uh, it feels needs to, like it could. It, it needs to be functionally like workable. Like I'm, I'm going to dig deeper on that. But and there's some of these clients that you're working with in, in as you call it, the real world, though, as point of order, I, I like uh, I always find that an odd uh, distinction. But anyway, let's call it the real world. Um, <laughs> sure. Like that's uh, like IBM and SpaceX. I mean, you have like amazing real world clients. Yeah. Um, it, it really is uh, an attraction that we have because we come to these projects with a very unique perspective, a sort of outside the box perspective, different from, you know, an in-house team of engineers. Um, and they really want some fresh perspective on these projects with a cinematic approach, something that feels uh, unique, uh, next generation and, you know, very forward looking. Um, so that's really you know, what we're all about. And the idea that you can have the same team uh, that's conceptualizing 
Iron Man's heads up display work on this project, uh, you know, for a real technology challenge, I think is, is, is very interesting, you know, and the way we would approach it is certainly different than the way other teams might approach it. And I think that's, uh, that's part of the appeal. I'm, I'm going to jump back if I can to your earlier comments uh, about um, the Marvel films, because I think one of the really interesting aspects about design work um, that is particularly the case with films is that if we're talking about an actor, you'd say, oh, it's really important they understand the back character, like the backstory that, you know, like what hence drives the character so that when you're making all these little subsequent choices, um, they're consistent with that kind of, and that brings that character to life. Now in the design world, I, I often heard, I'm, I'm, I have heard somebody speak about this and I'm interested to get your opinion. It's, it's so much of the kind of like, almost I'm going to call it the culture that you need to work in to then have established like from this space of, it might be natural materials, it might be um, climate, it might be any number of things about where somebody is or what they're doing or where they've come from, that is, is similarly going to inform all the design choices to make those seem in the same way that the actor has a clear view of the backstory of their character. You kind of need a clear cultural view of where something is because design comes from a, an inherent kind of culture in the same way that an actor's DNA sort of uh, is related to that notional DNA of their character. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the technology in many instances sh should feel like a natural extension of who this character is, what their personality is, what their level of innovation is. You know, we oftentimes would uh, joke about a technology food chain in the Marvel universe where Tony Stark was the top of the food chain. No one had cooler tech than Tony. So whenever we were designing for a particular film, it was always sort of compared to his tech. And, you know, in some instances we're designing for S.H.I.E.L.D. And it had to feel very uh, utilitarian and militaristic, very function-based and, uh, you know, mission critical. It shouldn't have any extraneous uh, elements on it. Uh, but when you're designing for Tony Stark, again, it, it, it should feel a little bit more artistic, a little more impressionistic. It should have a, a little bit of playfulness in some instances as a reflection of his, you know, kind of childhood imagination. Um, we designed a lot of the technology for Thor's girlfriend in Thor The Dark World, you know, played by Natalie Portman, Jane Foster. And she had all these devices that she's using in the film that really feel like they were put together you know, with a kit of spare parts she got from Radio Shack. So the interfaces on those screens had to feel very much a part of what those devices were. Um, certainly wouldn't be appropriate to have a, a Stark-like interface in those devices. It had to feel very much a part of her. Now, when we first got the call to work on Black Panther, the original uh, challenge was, until now, Tony Stark and Iron Man have had the most advanced technology in the MCU. Well. We're about to leapfrog that with Wakanda and Wakandan tech has to feel even further advanced. There's, there's nothing more advanced than this. So how do you go beyond Tony Stark? And that was part of the original uh, brief that we got and the original challenge when we were brought on to start coming up with ideas for properties of vibranium and how this, this, uh, this incredible element uh, could behave. And we were told that you know they've mined this material and it's used in all different functions of their, of their society from medicine to transportation, uh, weaponry, um, it's sound-based. So we were pulling from all these different pieces of the story and trying to figure out how we can uh, really advance the technology that we had seen thus far 
um, and in a way support the story that Vibranium needed to tell throughout that film. So what's really fascinating to me and, and why, well, for a start, let me just say right off the bat, I think the work that designers do in this space is astounding because if you've ever tried doing it, it sounds plausible that you could come up with that, what you just described. And if you actually start with a blank piece of paper, it's about one of the hardest design things going. But but I want to be, so like, let me use an example of a font, right? So like, I'm going to have some kind of graphical user interface and I need a font for it. So you've got to decide, well, what is the Tony Stark kind of font that would say that? And then yep. what's the font that would say Wakanda? And they, in, you know, they may be in both cases in English. Um, and then you might have, as, as you say, the one from Thor with Jane. And like, that's got to be, and like, of course, nobody thinks that the font has a inherent personality and yet it kind of does, right? And it that's sure just does. one tiny aspect. Yeah, I mean, there's there's all those elements. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a type lover, uh, so I, I certainly appreciate, you know, the right font selection for the right application. But, you know, a lot of these elements and a lot of the overall look and feel of these interfaces and these devices, even if it's uh, subconsciously, it's communicating to the audience who these characters are. You know, it's almost like like their costume or their wardrobe. You know, it becomes uh, another dimension of their personality. Um and you know who they are uh, as individuals. So you know that's that's very much uh, you know part of our design process, um, and kind of figuring out the identity and quote unquote the brand of the character, and if the the work that we're creating feels on brand to that character, does it feel foreign to that character? Is it like just perfect for that person? But um, and but these are a lot of a, yeah, so I was going to say, but the thing is, like that yeah. would be difficult enough, but you're also having to take into account that these things exist in our world. So, mm -hmm. so you're picking a font, a color, a thematic kind of visual device. And yes, that's got to work, but I mean, society itself is got changing tastes, right? And what I might think mm -hmm. looks really modern and uh, classical, um, you know, sorry, not classical, but like modern and uh, futuristic in something that was mm -hmm. done 10 years ago may have just dated a decade later. Yeah. Um, and so you, you have like a changing uh, target, I guess, in which you have to then find your own visual language. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. And you look at films, you know, uh, 10, 20 years ago that that showed futuristic technology and they are, you know, they look dated. Yeah. Um, they seem futuristic at the time, but, you know, now looking back at them, they're Using Eurostyle, uh, for instance, as yeah. the font, which is just you know this incredibly extended font that you know immediately evoked, you know, the future. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, sometimes it's 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 quieting that down and trying to find timeless design that, in its application, uh, behaves in a futuristic way or behaves in a uh, uh, a plausible way, but a way that's not quite uh, available to us now. Um, you know, just in the way the user experience uh, acts, um, you know, where the font is, you know, very, a very basic or simple font. Um, it's, it's in everything else in the um, context of it that brings it into that, you know, futuristic uh, uh, feel. Can I ask if you, what's the design sense? process for you for Therefore? So if I'm like, let's say somebody comes to you and we're still in the world of the film, I'll move to the real world in a second, but sure. in, in the film, um, like I come to you, uh, clearly there are art departments and a whole lot of visual references, but for your mm -hmm. team and your work, is it still classical uh, 
design tools like a mood board and uh, like, do you do kind of personas? Like what, how do you sort of set that up to, to work? That's in? a great question. You know, it, it, it really depends on the particular ask uh, of the team uh, and the film itself, where they are in their production. Um, and I'll give you a couple of, of examples. Um, Black Panther was an example of something that uh, a production that was just getting started and really didn't have, uh, they hadn't shot yet. We did, I believe, get to read the script or some of the script. Um, and they did have a Bible, uh, you know, that, that, that's been famous. It's kind of legendary, the 500 page Bible they made of Wakanda, which was, you know, an unbelievable achievement of, of, of their geography and their history and their, and their different tribes and the different, um, uh, clothing and weaponry. And like, it, it went through everything, uh, throughout that, uh, you know, society. And that was a way that to just kind of immerse us in that world and get our brains going, uh, on what, you know, the challenge was, which was, as I mentioned earlier, to, to start conceptualizing different applications of vibranium. Um, but then go to Iron Man two, and that was, uh, given to us after they had already shot all the scenes with Robert Downey Jr., uh, on on his set in his in his garage, you know, miming uh, to an invisible Jarvis. Um, we had all the dialogue, all the audio, and you know, conversations with the filmmakers um, to discuss what was needed, you know, around him as he was uh, doing his thing. And from there, you know, which it just started with the design phase, with coming up with uh, style frames and and motion tests, and just putting it into the scene, you know, very roughly to see what felt what felt right. Um, the Black Panther work initially was really more of an inspiration phase. You know, we were kind of hired at the outset uh, to inspire everybody with what the tech could be and how real technology innovations that were actually going on in the real world could be applied to this film. And how can we take um, certain technological advancements bring them into the film and then push them just beyond where they currently are. So for that film, we found uh, at the university, I believe of Tokyo, we found some amazing tests. They were using ultrasonic waves to levitate styrofoam particles. And this is all in our case study on our website, if anybody's interested. And we took that idea, knowing that vibranium had a lot of these properties of sound. And we took this idea to create these sort of sand, these vibranium smart matter, sand particle holograms because they did want holograms in the film, but they did definitely didn't want any holograms that felt like an Iron Man hologram or any hologram we had seen, you know, to that point from a dozen other science fiction films that we've all seen. So how can we, how can we push the idea of holograms forward um, with vibranium and with this sort of advanced tech? So that was one of the, the, the springboards for that film. Jeremy, is it easier for you if you go in with the 500 page Bible that says, okay, well, this is African and we've uh, got like a lot of thematic things that are clearly going to influence and in the mind of the audience should be relevant to the culture of, of Africans and uh, the colors and the earthy tones and everything else that goes along with that. Is that an easier design prospect for, for doing tech design than having a blank piece of paper or a, like a more open um, uh, sort of brief? Because like in one sense, you are not constrained, but you might be inspired and that might be great. But in another, of course, you kind of already been given a lot of the parameters 
Which, which mm-hmm. do you find easier? I guess which do you find more interesting to work on? Yeah, I always prefer. Um, I always prefer constraints. I love. Uh, I love designing when I know where the boundaries are. When we have a certain amount of focus. When we have uh, things that are are off the table. You know, completely. We don't want to need to waste time. You know, basically shooting at every direction. We can really hone it in and and focus it in on on the specific areas that. Um, the director and the filmmakers uh, wish us to when we're given a blank piece of paper, uh, so to speak, and the direction, and this is something because we've been around 20 years and I've heard it all, Mike, we're given the direction. I'll know it when I see it. That's <laughs> or, the scariest I want something freak. I've never seen before. Right, or that. Yeah. I mean, those are, those are uh, terrifying words uh, to hear because then you could just go forever. Right. Who's to say, yeah. uh, you know, we're ever done because if you haven't seen it yet, then we have to keep going. Do you do you uh, like to if you're in the sort of process of working up something? And you know, I'm speaking in generalities, of course, but like I mentioned before, like uh, mood boards. But like, would you, for example, say, well, you know, we're going to have to do this work for a character. I I think what we should do is like develop one thing a long way so we can really see like an almost near finished but on a narrow kind of brief. So let's say we're doing all the technology for something rather than try and develop samples and, and sort of possible ideas that could be spread across everything. Do you like say, well, let's just do one thing really in detail and see how that would look. Or is it better to still stay in the early days, very, very broad and not get sort of locked in until you start getting feedback from the director or the client? Yeah. I, we try to keep it as loose and broad in the, in the early stages as possible. Um, because if we put too much time and energy into one direction and only one direction and they don't like it, then all that time and energy was was wasted and lost forever. But, so the, we're, but the problem we're, is they're like, the the client problem with that is they're like, well, this is all very well and good, but I don't know what it's actually going to specifically look like. Is right. I mean, there are clients that are sort of like, For yeah. sure, for sure. And, you know, that that's kind of our job is to figure out what's the, I guess, what's the 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 best or the the least amount of energy we need to exert to produce the result that's going to give them a clear visual sense of what this is going to be. You know, and different different people have different levels of visualization and imagination. We've had clients, you know, that have no imagination and you have to basically finish the project in order for them to visualize it. And then we have clients that all I need to see is a, is a napkin sketch and, uh, you know, a couple of dots and I'll connect the dots and everything like in between, to, you know. How do you like there's, to work? Is it is it like an agile process where you're like wanting every couple of weeks to be constantly showing um, like, because I mean, we imagine sometimes that you want to do the ta-da presentation where everyone goes into the room and you hand out the, you know, eight by 10 books and the slideshow mm-hmm. is amazing and everyone goes, wow, but that's the riskiest process because you're, you know, you're assuming a big gap between when they last saw it and when they see it now versus the mm-hmm. less impressive but perhaps safer path of constantly giving them stuff so you're never far off a off a uh you know feedback yeah i mean we 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 certainly love to uh to show work as frequently as possible you know within reason um we obviously need time to develop uh, ideas in between showings but yeah we don't want to go too far or too long without some sort of uh feedback and response because again, if it's not if it's not hitting the mark or if it's going off the rails, then we'd rather know that you know sooner than later. I will say um, when we're doing title sequences, uh, which we've done a ton of uh, now, and we're really proud of of all the ones we've done for Marvel, 
Um, a lot well, of those... you just got Emmy nominated for uh, yeah, uh, well, that's, that was amazing for WandaVision. WandaVision, congratulations! Um, yeah, thank you. But you know, a lot of those often start with a blank canvas. I mean, we'll, we have in many instances seen the show or some episodes of the show or seen the film or some early cut of the film, but there have been plenty of times. Endgame was an example. We didn't see the Endgame, and we just basically had to, you know, show up with a couple, three, four, five, six ideas of a title sequence that conveyed a very general creative brief that we were given. You know, for that movie, it was, this is the um, curtain call of these six, you know, original Avengers. So we really want to pay tribute um, to these characters, to these actors. How can we do that? Jeremy, I want to ask you a question. I've so wanted to have a a senior designer answer for me, right? So I'm a junior, I'm working for you. We've, we, we, the team's worked up four killer, you know, sensible proposals that we're going to show to the client, but you as the, you know, co-founder of the company, everything I'll say, this is the one like number three is the one. Do you show number three first or last? I've always wanted to know this. You've got four things to show and you're in love with number three. Is it, where yeah. does it sit in the presentation order? Usually first. Okay. I like to go in with the strongest one, but I also like to close with, with one that's almost as strong. And then one in the middle that's, I guess, the third strongest. So the idea is for me, it's like a fence. So you put the posts in, right? right? The, the first one is, is super strong. The middle one is going to be strong and the last one's going to be strong. And then you connect them with the other two in this, you know, we're talking about five um, that need a little bit, maybe a little bit of more support, but they're worth showing. And because... that's kind of the way I stagger it. And I always, I, I learned that in school with my portfolio. Oh, really? You know, uh, yeah, that was a, that was sort of advice I got early on uh, from a mentor and, and it stuck with me, you know, whether it's a reel or, or a presentation is like, is kind of thinking, thinking of it as a fence and having your, your first one and your last one be the ones that are the strongest, but one in the middle that can also support whatever's in the, whatever's comes next in between those posts. I mean, you guys, so I, I like that to... metaphor. You don't have anything to prove, of course, but like, there's always that thing that if you show your first one and you really like, you know, because designers invest themselves in their work, right? There's, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's professional, but it's also an emotional kind of thing. And if the client hates the first one, it's so deflating that, yeah. that it's like hard to come back with. Um, but I guess if you know your last one's really solid, then, you know, you've got, I guess, something up your sleeve to. Uh, yeah. I mean, I the other thing that, uh, you know, I don't want to give away you know, all my, uh, I guess my, uh, your secrets, superstitions or my secrets, but, um, I always love to pitch first. Right. You know, if, we're, if we know we're, we're presenting against a different, uh, group of companies, I, I want perception to be the first one up. Um, it's just something that we've always done and, you know, we love to kind of set the tone. Uh, we also know that they're the, the, whoever's in the room, the audience hopefully will have the most interest and in, in energy at that point. They're not tired. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're not tired. They're not, uh, you know, burned out on listening to another yet another presentation or pitch. Um, you know, but so let me ask you this: Are you a, they, they they give you fifteen minutes, you're in and out. So you subscribe to that model. That if you've got the sales shut up, in other words, if the first one is just seems like it's knocked out of the park and they're like just in love mm-hmm. with it, think it's brilliant. You can only you can only go backwards from there, right? Like if you've got the sale shut up. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if, if anything, it just gives, you know, me and my team, the, the, the calmness and the confidence that, okay, we, we, we already got them, you know, we, we got their interest, we got their respect. 
Um, hopefully, uh, we got their appreciation for what we brought. And now, you know, the rest should be uh, like the pressure's off kind of thing. And, you know, sometimes that actually makes a better presentation because you kind of like, you know, that you're, you're in a good spot and I can kind of relax because if, uh, if they're not liking it at the first one, then you're, you're going to, you're going to start to, uh, to push it a little harder as you keep going. You know what I mean? So can we swing our attention now to the, what you call the real world clients? Uh, so sure. this is the non-film clients, right? Yeah. Um, and the only reason I push back on that term is that, you know, like obviously film, as you know, better than anyone is a real industry with real people doing great work. But anyway, of course. We're, we're talking about the other one being real world for a second. And I guess my first question, because we're already on this discussion is how is that pitch and process different if you're walking into a room of, you know, Silicon Valley tech that um, are not from the film industry? Because one mm -hmm. imagines that the film industry people are much better at visualizing, but I may, may not be true. I don't know. Yeah, no, it, it is. It's a, it's a kind of a different process. I mean, the first thing right off the bat, I'll say is the timeframes and the, uh, the schedules and just the sense of urgency is a completely different animal. You know, with the film world, we're, we're used to, uh, crazy deadlines, uh, having to get things done, you know, in, in record time working with, you know, extreme amount of pressure, but with the technology clients, we're often talking about a lot longer of, of a development time which, you know, it can be good. It can be bad. It depends on, you know, what you're doing. I love urgency. I think it, it, it creates, um, it gives a creative, uh, no opportunity to waste time and just kind of get to where they need to get to. Um, like we were talking about earlier with a blank piece of paper, it can be overwhelming. You kind of have, you don't even know where to go with it. So sometimes having too much time can be a dangerous thing. Um, but, you know, we try to create our own sense of urgency. We try to dictate uh, with tech clients, a little bit of the pacing, you know, just to, just to keep things moving and to keep things flowing. And as you mentioned earlier, we do use an agile system, uh, for presentations and reviews. Um, but yeah, it, you know, depending upon who's in the room, who's on the call, who's in the zoom, um, we often will adjust the fidelity of what we're showing, um, because it might require a little bit more, uh, I guess, visualization, uh, for us to produce, you know, whether it's like, okay, let's put this, let's make this thing move, you know, even though it's, we're not building an animation, let's simulate it because it's showing an interaction. It's so it's showing a use case or a sequence of, of, of user uh, engagements through a product. So we might actually build it out as if it's a mini movie um, because we know that's the best way to convey how something's really going to behave to a decision maker and a stakeholder. And in what we like to call those is, you know, science fiction prototyping. So, you know, we've in the past created little mini movies uh, for our tech clients where we'll actually go out and, you know, shoot someone in a car and then like comp in, you know, things going on their screen later. Um, and then put that together in, you know, with visual effects and, you know, high-end compositing to show that to a tech client to really convey what this user experience is gonna be like, what it's gonna feel like. Something we love doing is adding sound to give it that immersive uh, quality because when you're uh, using this product, it's, it's more than just visual, it's, it's auditory. I mean, sometimes there's a, there's a haptic quality or tactile quality that we have to convey. So we'll do whatever we need to do to bring that, that design to life in a way that, that they'll truly, uh, I guess, understand you know, versus just here's a, here's a Photoshop frame. That's not going to do it. 
you know, unless yeah. you're really dealing with specific designers on the other end who completely understand it. But where but we we've started done this, storyboards. Yeah. Sorry. No, I was going to say, I, was just, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I was going to say where we started this conversation was this whole idea that the, if you present to the film cast client and mm -hmm. it looks good, it is good, right? Like that's it. That's the end of that story. But in Hopefully. the, well, but you know, I mean, like, like it sure. doesn't have to work is what I guess I'm saying. Whereas right, right. here, if you are talking about an actual user experience or a customer experience, um, it's a lot more than just a, a visual kind of, yeah, that looks good. Like it has to flow. It has to make mm -hmm. sense and actually has to be functionally not uh, like, it's quite possible something can look good, not your work. <laughs> something could look good, but be frustrating to use because of the yeah. way that the customer actually interacts with it as opposed to how it just looks. And so that's a, that's a very big extra dimension. I mean, a dominant. hundred percent. And you know, the biggest, the biggest difference uh, there for us is that we have a, a user experience lead on the staff at perception that depending upon the, the project will get heavily involved in wireframing in creating, you know, flow charts in doing some very rough prototyping to really kind of create the user experience before we get too deep into the look and feel, into the GUI, if you will, of what it is. Because this, this lead, this UX lead is really speaking the same language in a way as a lot of the engineers speak on the client side, you know, and talking to them as, as they will understand it. Like this is the sequence of events. This is the use case. This is how everything will flow. And these are, this is the hierarchy that we've come up with. Um, a lot of that work too involves interviews or uh, talking to users about what what they want, what they like in the existing product, what they don't like. You know, feeling feeling all that out um, and going back and forth on that phase. Uh, you know, a few times, um, and then sometimes when we create rough prototypes, we might test that out with their users. Again, trying to avoid as much um, of that down the road. Trying to get a lot of that out of the way at the beginning because so much of that, you know, can inform uh, the design of it without having to design it first and then test it later. I mean, in uh, the, uh, the, if you go to design school, whatever, they'll talk about uh, personas. I'm wondering in the film world, mm -hmm. it doesn't seem as relevant, but I would imagine in the UX world, it's, is it, I mean, do you go for that classic, let's build a persona of this user and, and work to that, or is that just more? Yeah, no, we, we definitely do. And, you know, I, I, I often call, uh, uh, call it the four parallels between the, the, the tech work and the film work that we do. And the, the first parallel is storytelling. Everything that we do for feature films and technology companies is always going to be around telling a great story, telling a great story to a user or persona or telling a great story, you know, to an audience in a, in a film's case. So at, 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 the, at the foundation level, all the work we do is, is building a great narrative and telling a compelling story, which, yes, is, is about users, personas, or characters in, in a film. The, uh, the second one is creating, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, um, but is, is giving it a cinematic experience. You know, and a cinematic experience for me is, you know, one that can transport you to another emotional state. You know, it's the feeling we all get when we go to a, a movie theater, when we could go to movie theaters, um, and feel like, you know, for the two, three hours, we can escape our lives and really be transported to another place um, and where the boundaries of the screen just sort of disappear and the whole experience is very immersive and very cinematic. Well, you know, as I mentioned, we're often asked to, to create a cinematic user experience for a product. 
you know, and a lot of that is really taking what looks great in, in the film work and trying to inject it into, into real user experience uh, uh, projects. So a lot of that is involving uh, creating spatial qualities of dimension and depth, um, giving it different sensory uh, explorations like sound, but just something that can really transport the user and really make them feel like, you know, they're, they're getting deep, deeper and deeper and more involved into this, you know, user experience uh, design. The third one uh, is the entertainment value. You know, how can we engage the user? How can we keep them, you know, really attached to the product or the device? Um, really, you know, entertain them. How can we delight them? You know, we talk about moments of delight and these kind of magical moments of, of the user experience that just feel a little bit special, uh, that just feel a little bit alive, a little bit, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, animated, uh, you know, that give the user just uh, an enjoyment. Uh, when they're using it. And of course, the entertainment value in the film is to really keep the audience uh, engaged with what's going on. You know, one, one of the fascinating things about the work we do in movies is that, you know, films now will literally cut to a screen for a beat or a few seconds or minutes, and the audience is watching an interface. You know, that's taken over a movie for that moment in time. It's like you're literally watching a screen or an interface play out in a sequence as a piece of storytelling. So if we're not entertaining, if we're not telling the story, if we're not keeping the audience engaged and sequencing it in a certain way, then we're breaking this arc, you know, that the director has created from, you know, live action to screen back to live action. Like we have to hold the movie for that moment. So it's really important that we, you know, take that seriously and, uh, and connect those, those moments very well. And then the last, a parallel we often talk about at the studio is this idea of soul, that everything you know that we create an interface needs to feel like it's got a life to it, like it's got a personality to it. Um, you know, it just feels like uh, a human being designed this interface for another human being, that it wasn't you know created by a computer. It doesn't feel two dimensional. It has a, it just has a a, a care and appreciation for you know human factors. You know, it's this idea when I when I look at um, the the Tony Stark technology that we worked on, the audience should feel like Tony Stark created it. You should see his you know fingerprint in it. You should see his if it was a piece of art. You should see his brushstrokes in it, and we want that to be evident, you know, in the in the uh, in the work that we do in feature films. But we also want it to be evident in the work we do for technology companies. In the same way we're discussing earlier, like you have to pick, uh, and I use the example of a font, you know, like what is the sort of current hip font for what seemed to be futuristic? I mean, you know, even more so, you have to be in touch with the zeitgeist of what's happening in the design space for these real world products. And I'm wondering, like, as a broad question, like, do you explicitly do anything to feel like you're in touch with that? Or is it just, you know, like you live in the world and you, you breathe it in? I think it's just, you know, being aware of your world and taking it all in and obviously having a, you know, a wonderful, talented, diverse team that has all their own unique experiences and their own observations and everything that they're looking at on a, on a daily basis and having all those, you know, perspectives and those voices sort of influence um, the ideas and designs that we create. I think that's really important. Um, can I can ask you something else that just popped up when you were talking a moment ago. Um, sure. And it seemed to me like it's a very specific point, but one of the big other differences, if we think about between the real world, as it were, and the cinematic world, um, 
and I'm being speaking in broad generalizations here, but I could imagine that a lot of the real world applications often end up with something that might be an app or something that would be witnessed or uh, experienced in a, in a mobile device. Um, in a film, it's uh, a completely different canvas because it's a big screen. In a film, I'm really kind of aware of where the audience is looking because there's such a large kind of field of view. And on a screen, mm -hmm. I mean, it's like a much smaller kind of field of view. And I'm just wondering, like, in terms of design considerations, um, is it a remarkably different thing when you know that that user interface is going to be sitting on a, an IMAX screen or a seven-inch screen? Uh, yeah, it's definitely different. And we know, you know, where the user is going to be focused on, and we want to make sure that we don't um, confuse or distract, you know, from that focus. Look, what, what works in feature films certainly doesn't necessarily work on a real piece of, of technology. And we often have that, that conversation with tech clients who have this idea that they want to make this feel like Iron Man or make this feel like we've heard Robocop because that was a film we worked on as well, the reboot. Um, or, you know, pick your tech sci-fi film. They want it to look like that. And, you know, the reality is that, that, that doing full body gestures and swiping through the air uh, wouldn't really... Uh, be too much fun for an extended period of time. It'd be exhausting and, you know, probably the not very efficient to get the task at hand done that you're trying to get done. So what we like to do is we like to create this continuum. Uh, we'll, you know, in the, in the days where we, we were in the studio with clients doing workshops, we would go up on the whiteboard, we draw this continuum line and on, on one end is Iron Man, Jarvis, Tony Stark, and on all the way on the other extreme, we'd say is Microsoft Excel. <laughs> and where do you want to be on this continuum, right? Because you got the most, you know, uh, I guess basic interface you could possibly have, you know, a spreadsheet, uh, all the way to the most extreme, you know, over the top, in your face, uh, impractical, science fiction interface uh, on the other extreme. And, you know, it's, it's a candid and honest conversation. Like, you know, okay, so you, you really do want to push it. We're happy to do it. You know, you're, you're paying us, you hired us. This is the vision you have. We'll do it. You know, we don't say we didn't warn you. You know, we, we, we talk about usability and we talk about, you know, testing this out with users and making sure that it functions. But depending on the client, depending upon the application, perhaps they're trying to just sell a vision through. And this is another thing that we do a lot of is they, a client will wanna sell a futuristic vision of a product 10 years from now. And they'll hire us to bring that vision to life. So it doesn't really have to function right now. It doesn't really have to work, but they wanna create something like a roadmap or, or a North Star, if you will, a vision for what said product could be 10 years from now or X many years into the future, something that they can put on a, on a flat screen in their conference room, or somewhere in the hallways of their of their offices that everybody can look at every day and say that's where we're headed. You know, engineers can look at it and say that's what we're building towards. Um, executives and stakeholders can look at it and say that's what we're building towards, and it creates sort of an alignment and an excitement towards some future path, knowing all well that what's up there is not exactly what it's going to be, but it just sort of inspires, right? And it creates this this energy. Uh, and this motivation to want to get to, you, you know, some approximate area near what that vision is. So it really all depends, you know, on 
what the end product is that we're, we're asked to create and all those other factors that I just mentioned. So I have two other aspects of this that I wanted to discuss with you is the second one is the thing that I like in design is really, uh, and this is maybe it's just a personal thing, but I like white space. I like simplicity. Mm -hmm. I like, and of course the thing about iron or anything else is it's incredibly visually cluttered in one sense from mm -hmm. a appreciation of information, like, like throwing a lot of stats onto somebody's sort of visible, um, space isn't necessarily the most efficient way. Now, yes, dashboards are great, but, but, you know, like there is a real sense of like, sort of, I think anyway, design elegance that comes from knowing what is relevant to show when, and, and yet that kind of isn't what you want, you know, in a futuristic thing, you don't want it to be like, well, there's hardly anything there. Um, because that doesn't look like, doesn't look like the design team has done their job. Well, of course, I would argue that it's the exact opposite. That that if you could simplify it and make it look less dense, less um, cluttered, and and much more, like as I say, using things in white space, it doesn't feel like you've done um, a futuristic design because there's not much there. But in reality, right. like if you could come up with a design that is, um, and I mean, look, you know, Google's fundamental kind of search mm -hmm. engine thing, right? Is is not yep. a design disaster. It's 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 its simplicity is its strength. Yeah, and you can say the same thing about Apple. Yeah, um, you know that that's clean. It's a lot of white space. Um, very easy to read. Very easy to navigate. You know, very user friendly. That's been uh, uh, since since the Mac came out in 1984. That was what you know distinguished you know Macs from all of their PCs. You know, it was this incredibly user friendly, clean, elegant you know experience. And I'm a huge fan of that as well. Um, it's it'd just, be hard you know, to come up with a user design of the future that has like just three buttons and it'd be like, well, you haven't done anything. <laughs> it's like, well, it's the right three buttons if you have. Yeah. I mean, there, there is a, um, you know, there is something to be said about like, well, we paid for all this real estate. We want to use all this real estate. Um, but, you know, in, in, in practical purposes and, you know, for real world uh, applications, it's a uh, cleaner is, is better. I agree. Yeah, it's uh, it's just the perception of what that uh, that future is going to look like. I think that um, that can be awkward for for people. Um, the third thing I wanted to um, discuss with you, which is so fundamental, is we've been using terms like customer experience and user experience uh, in comparison to UI or, or GUI, as in the the actual mm -hmm. user interface in the film. Mm -hmm. To a certain extent like the the graphical representation the ability to it makes sense to an audience when they're clearly not given any context is absolutely critical so it tends to weight mm -hmm. it to the gui end of that spectrum when you're doing work for the real world clients you're interested mm -hmm. in an entire experience a customer journey which presumes mm -hmm. that there's more than just a single interaction with a single screen in the film mm -hmm. it tends to be like if it looks good on the screen you're done but I guess I'm just interested in what techniques you might use beyond that aren't used in the film world that are used in the real world because you have to address that issue of it being a real thing in the world. Right. I think it goes it goes back to the UX phase that we go deep into, whether it's wireframing or prototyping or developing use cases, interviewing users, stakeholders in the product, um, in the application and uh, really just fleshing out all of those different scenarios before we, you know, dive too deeply into the visual of it, into the, uh, you know, design of it. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, I guess, I guess um, you have to hand over 
um, presumably to a, in some cases, to an actual implementation team, your work, um, so that they may take it into actual productization, which is quite a different deliverable than just handing over uh, high quality visuals that'll go into the film because there's more to the real world work than just producing a good looking picture. And I was trying mm -hmm. to get some indication of that. Um, you know, you, if you deliver a picture and the director likes it, that's kind of it. I imagine if you develop up some ideas in the real world that you might have to provide a whole lot more than just the visuals, right? Yeah, and that's where all the UX work comes yeah. in and testing it and making sure that it functions and it's usable and it's it solves all the uh, the challenges and problems that you know the user's looking for us to solve. I just find it fascinating, this idea of uh, the reality of what you're doing and when it needs to translate to a cinematic interpretation versus the reality of what you're doing when it has to translate to a real product. And, um, and I find that, that doing that is just such an interesting divide because it does seem like certain inherent properties of one don't translate to the other, and some do, right? And the fact that you've bridged and, and both worlds is remarkable. Yeah, and what's funny, uh, you know, we like to, to joke about it, is the, the irony that uh, film directors uh, who work with us, everything that we do for films has to be grounded in reality. It has to have uh, authenticity and believability and feel real. Um, as, as I say, uh, as I said earlier, you know, audiences are increasingly uh, savvy with what technology can and cannot do. They'll understand if, if this is possible or they'll cry, you know, BS the second something comes across the screen that's uh, just not believable. So the filmmakers want everything to feel as real as possible. And now you contrast that with the technology companies who come to us saying we want it to look like this movie or this character and make it cinematic. So the, the joke is the, the filmmakers want the work to look real and the real companies want their work to look like it does in the films. So it's this, it's this wonderful you know, yin and yang, this feedback loop uh, where one is constantly inspiring the other and they just continually feed into each other. I saw this in a movie and I want my product to look like this. The filmmaker says, I have this product, I want that product in the movie, but to look a little bit different. So it, they constantly feed into each other. My last question to you is this, where do you get your team from, generally speaking? Do you mm -hmm. sourcing them from a film background? Are you sourcing them from a design background? Or you, I mean, like, where is the majority of your staff sort of coming to you from? And what are you looking for in them when you're hiring? That's a great question. You know, it's, it's, a, it's definitely, it's, since day one has been, uh, you know, the, the biggest challenge is finding the right, talent uh to join the team um you know we're definitely a unique bunch i think we all you know have a lot of uh you know shared passions whether it's uh, technology superheroes um science fiction uh but with that said everybody has something unique and a little bit special you know about what they bring to the table you know we often talk about how we don't want to hire you know clones of, of each other. I, we don't want everybody to be the same person, you know, with a different name. I, I love, uh, you know, hiring artists and designers who have something unique that they do that, you know, the person next to them can't do, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, the Avengers, each one has their own superpower 
or the X-Men. Each one has their own, you know, mutation. And as a team, they're unstoppable. So, you know, there is the, the shared passions, uh, which is which is common ground. But beyond that, you know, somebody's maybe stronger in 3D animation, someone's stronger in 2D design, uh, someone's more user experience focused, uh, someone's more, uh, you know, of a, of, a, of a sketcher, you know, likes to draw and can just create with, you know, pencil and paper. Um, everybody is encouraged to write. You know, I love uh, people who, who, who write and can tell stories. You know, that's something else that we look for. Um, just as far as, you know, where do we, where do we find them? We find a lot of, uh, great talent coming out of schools. Um, there's great colleges like, uh, Savannah college of art and design, my alma mater, Carnegie Mellon, Otis in California, full sale in Florida, uh, plenty of great art schools in New York, like Parsons and Pratt, you know, you name it. There's, a, there's so many, um, that's quite then, a diverse, you know, that's quite a diverse, right? I mean, Parsons is fashion. You, you did uh, graphic design, architecture and business, right? Is that right? I did. Yeah, I actually I, I went to Carnegie Mellon initially for architecture because I thought that's what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and then after a year of that or before a year was over, I knew it wasn't for me. I mean, there's a whole story there. Um, I just wasn't 100 percent committed to it. And if you're in architecture school, if you know about architecture schools, it's one of the most intense programs you can be in. It's a five year program at most colleges in America. And like you're either 100 percent or you don't belong. So if you're 99.9%, .9%, you don't belong there. Like you cannot have any doubt. They literally have like a hundred freshmen by the fifth year, there's like 20 seats. Like they know people are going to uh, whittle themselves out. And I was certainly one of them. So I knew I was just like not a hundred percent on it. Um, so I transferred into uh, the graphic design program at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and I was able to also uh, minor in business. So I picked up the minor in architecture because of the year I was, I spent in it. And then I also minored in business because in the back of my head, I just I, I knew at some point I wanted to start uh, my own thing. So I wanted to get a little bit of uh, of, of knowledge in, in the business world. Um, but my my education uh, in graphic design was very traditional. Uh, I didn't do any animation in college. I didn't do any visual effects in college. It was logos and typography and layout and color posters, you know, things like that. Um, which was great. You know, I don't, I don't regret that at all. I mean, that was, this was the early nineties. There wasn't a lot of animation going on in colleges, uh, certainly not in graphic design programs. And, uh, I, you know, got this great foundation in, in graphic design, but one of the, the turning points for me was in my, I guess my junior year, I, I did an independent study with a professor on, uh, it was like on type animation because I really was interested in learning about moving typography um, in the most crude and fundamental way that you, we were doing it back then with Macromind Director. <laughs> um, if you remember that program. Oh, yeah. And uh, and and this professor, he had an archive of title sequences that he had been, you know, housing like he had these old videotapes that he had of all the Saul Bass title sequences from Alfred Hitchcock films. He had, you know, great uh, James Bond title sequences. And then he had a company in New York called R. Greenberg Associates. He had their reel, which of course was Superman titles and Aliens and Untouchables and all these, you know, classic titles in the 80s. Now, at this time, title sequence design was not a thing. Like it wasn't, you know, mainstream. It wasn't like something that, you know, 
people knew about as a as a focus as a specialty this guy completely opened my eyes to this as a as a possibility i didn't even think about something like i always loved movies i grew up you know loving film and seeing every movie that came out and you know i was i was just always very passionate about movies and all of a sudden you know the the light bulb went off that i could combine both passions of movies and graphic design and do title sequences so that sort of created this uh i guess this new goal for me that uh, you know i wanted to get into that world i wanted to get into that field when i was you know out of college so i started you know sending my work to uh the very few title sequence companies that existed at that time and the first person i i sent my work to was saul bass <laughs> who was still alive and i got a, a a letter back from saul bass signed by him it's a rejection letter and i still have it it was you know, it's great it's got a stamp of him he, he's a fish a bass with his face on it and that's how he used to sign his letters um but uh i didn't i didn't send my stuff to r greenberg associates right off the bat uh, I applied to a lot of different other um, design firms at the time. And then on a whim, I was in New York. I was, that's where I'm from. And I went into the, um, I went into the lobby of our Greenberg Associates. Back in those days, by the way, you, you didn't have a, a website. You know, you didn't have a Facebook page. It was all a print portfolio. I had a box of my work that you would physically like go around to design firms and you would like drop it off and you know if they would look at them at some some day of the week and if they like you you know they'd call you back if not you come back the next day and you'd have to pick it up so i walked into the uh, lobby of our greenberg associates it was uh, july of 1995 and i was pretty much like at my wits end because i had gotten nowhere with all these other design firms you know i had tried a million different uh places that i loved in new york like design firms like pentagram and you know, all these Shemayev and Geismar and these classic branding firms, just, you know, traditional legendary graphic design firms that I idolized as a design student and just no interest in me. And then I finally just said, screw it. I'm going to just walk into Art Greenberg Associates with my portfolio. And I walked in and it was like a Monday and they had the receptionist had asked me, like, did they call you? uh to bring this in and i didn't know what the heck she was talking about and i said yeah that's right they <laughs> called me and she took my portfolio and put it in the pile it turned out that that sunday the sunday new york times help wanted section which in 1995 was like a phone book right there was no you know hotjobs.com yeah, yeah. none of that stuff that's where you look for work they put an ad in that sunday for a designer and they got you know 10,000 resumes in and I guess it couldn't have been Monday. So it was probably like somewhere in the middle of the week because the, the resumes came in, a stack of resumes came in. They pulled a handful that they were interested in and asked those people to bring in their portfolios. So I sort of like jumped over that pile of resumes. They saw my work and I had an interview uh, a day or two later and I got the job uh, a week later. And that's my first job out of college was at R Greenberg Associates, RGA, doing title sequences um, and a lot of television work. We did a ton of uh, graphics for TV, commercials, um, and then little by little, a lot more interactive stuff, which is where RGA eventually evolved into and became, you know, this gigantic digital agency that they are today. But um, that, that was where I learned all about animation and visual effects. I had no real world or any experience truly in that, but that's the place in New York at that time that was doing effects work. 
and yeah. CG and, and all these things. And I learned it all there. I, I, there's a, I, I don't know if it seems like when I was looking at your work that you might've come through in that there was a sort of a, an era, I guess in the eighties where you had the, the sudden, um, for the first time, rockstar, uh, font designers like Neville Brody mm -hmm. and stuff. David Carson. Yeah. And that, mm -hmm. that respect for, uh, design and fonts and the whole, uh, notion of typesetting as being a, mm -hmm. a valid artistic, uh, endeavor just seemed to blossom. And then that consequently in the subsequent decade led to such great work because of that, nothing to do with computer graphics kind of, uh, training and, uh, eye and understanding of, uh, of how design worked. And I just felt like that was, that was such a interesting case of, you know, sometimes today people say, what program should you learn? And I'm always thinking, gee, I wouldn't be focused at the program level because the application yeah. is just a tool in the very literal sense. You have to have an eye and that's the thing yeah. that, that matters. Yeah. And I, in college, I was, a, I was, like I mentioned earlier, I was a, a freak about fonts. I, you know, you remember like emigre, those catalogs and house industries and all these font houses. I, I used to just get their catalogs and I would just pour over them. And, you know, this great magazine work as well at that period. Great magazine work. And, you know, I had the, the Adobe font catalog and I just like, I literally would sit in my dorm room and like, look through these, you know, font books to the point where I could like test myself in the real world and be like, that's Garamond, that's Gaudi, that's Caslon. You know, I just go around the world. And, and, you know, when I started perception years later, uh, with my partner, Danny Gonzalez, who I met, by the way, at RGA. That's kind of the, yeah. the tail end of that story is how we, we met there. The joke was, uh, you know, test Jeremy on the font because we'd have clients that would like, we want this font for this commercial. And, you know, I'd be like, okay, I know. I would point to it and tell them exactly, you know, what the font was. And this is before there was a website which does that for you, I think now. Um, so I was sort of like my, I didn't uh, ask you, did you design fame. the font for Perception? the company the 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 current one no uh i didn't one of our one of our talented designers did that sort of modified it uh from a gotham but yeah i love it i it love is. it and that's been with us for for a while the uh the the perception font has evolved in 20 years it's it's gone through a few different iterations but the mark the circles the i and then the four the, you know, the circle type, arms yeah. that call up, that's been there since day one yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think it's a good, a good graphical, uh, allusion to you guys being yeah. Uh, on brief. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. You guys do just amazing work. And as I said, I really find it, um, stunningly difficult, to, uh, if, you know, people haven't done it, they should try it. Just try designing a uh, futuristic looking interface that makes sense mm -hmm. to people without looking just like a clutter, but has personality. <laughs> it's a, it's a real design uh, challenge that is maybe underrated and it shouldn't be because it's brilliant. And you guys doing that and then in the real world is remarkable. Um, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. It's been terrific. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I had a blast. Thanks so much. Well, thanks so much for that. I, I actually listen to that podcast. I'm driving uh, back to Mexico on my way from Chicago. I've been living in Mexico the last couple of years and just sold my house there in Chicago driving through the mountains, beautiful day, beautiful scenery, and really enjoyed the podcast. And I thought to myself, man, this is cool. Uh, life is good. So hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Our next FX podcast is going to be, as Mike would say, a cracker. Uh, I'm really, uh, I'm sure 
You'll really enjoy it. I'm not going to mention the guest just in case it doesn't um, happen because we haven't recorded it yet, but um, I'm pretty confident it will, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So that's it for this week. Uh, For Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.